finding joy. We have been in a short series of some lessons on some of the things that Henry Blackaby brings up in his uh, wonderful study on experiencing God and how we listen for God, that God's already at work around us and he invites us to join him. And when he does, that causes us to have a what he calls a crisis of belief, a moment where we have to decide what it is that we truly believe about him and do we trust him enough to go where he is asking us to go. And today, we're going to kind of stay with that a little bit, but, but we're going to talk about joy. You have heard of the triumphal entry of Jesus, yes? Yes. Yet centuries before that happened, there was another triumphal entry. It was a period of time when the Ark of the Covenant came to rest in Jerusalem. Now, what had happened at about 1180 B.C. before Christ is Israel was at war with the Philistines. Of course, I mean, you look through the Old Testament, you see it wasn't one time, right? It happened several times. Well, this time the Philistines got the best of them and they took the Ark of the Covenant and they took it into their territory. And they knew they had Israel on the ropes because they had their God, their representation of God. But what they didn't realize is nobody is going to take God and lock him up. That's just simply not going to happen. God caused a plague of death to break out among the Philistines. They figured out very quickly what the problem was, and they decided they didn't want that ark anymore. So they tried to give it back, and eventually they did give it back, and they actually paid the Israelites to take it back because they wanted to get God's judgment off of them. Well, the ark doesn't immediately go to Jerusalem. It actually goes to a small town called Kiriath-Jerim, and it goes to rest at Abinadad's house. Some have wondered why in the world didn't they, you know, take it on. You know, was that Shiloh where where the temple was for a period of time, the tabernacle that was there, uh, the tent of meeting? Apparently, that may have been uh, destroyed or at least knocked down, and Shiloh wasn't a possibility But the likelihood is, is they put it in hiding. They put it somewhere where the Philistines or somebody else wouldn't find it until they figured out what they were going to do with it. And it stayed there at Abinadab's house for 20 years. Now, in the process of that time, Saul is deposed as king. And David comes to the throne. Now, after David has been king for a little while, he decides that he wants the ark brought to the city of God to Jerusalem. So David takes 
just a small company of 30,000 men and goes to kiriath Jerim to get the ark. So they loaded up on an ox cart and David and the whole house of Israel celebrating on the way as they are bringing it up to Jerusalem. They're celebrating with all their might before the Lord with songs and with harps and lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. I mean, they are making a cacophony of praise. Not noise, but praise. They brought the ark to the edge of the city, yet it would be another three months before the ark would actually go into Jerusalem because King David was scared. You see, on that trip, they had put it on an ox cart. Uh, Abinadab's two sons were going in front of the ox cart. But as they were approaching the city, the, the, the oxes stumbled and the ark shifted and Uzzah, who was Abinadab's son, reaches up and steadies the ark so it won't fall off the cart. And when he does, God struck him dead on the spot. If you remember, all the way back to Leviticus, there's this little statement that only the Aaron's descendant priest the Aaronic priests are allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. Not only that, they are supposed to carry it on their shoulders between two poles if it's ever to be moved. Well, when Uzzah dies, God gets David's attention. And he starts wondering what's going on. And he fears that he and the city might not be worthy of the ark's presence. So, a Levite by the name of Obed-Edom, he keeps it at his house for three months. Now, the interesting thing is, in Obed-Edom's house, all of a sudden gets blessed. There are things that are happening and blessings that are happening that could not have been happening unless God had his hand there. In fact, we might call that miraculous blessings that took place. And when David saw that Obed-Edom and the community around him were being blessed by God, David took that as a sign that, yes, indeed, God was willing and wanting the ark to be moved into the city. And the ark came into the city with all the pomp and celebration worthy of the king of kings. With the Levites carrying it with the post, (laughs) the way it's supposed to be done. And we read this in 2 Samuel 6. 
David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen of fod, danced before the Lord with all of his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. It was a day of great joy and David reveled in the joy of the Lord. Now I want to ask you friends, When was the last time that you reveled in the joy of the Lord? Do you remember that feeling of of triumph, that that feeling of, of the weight lifted from you when God's Spirit came to rest in the temple of your body? When you accepted Christ as Lord? And you were baptized, washing your sins away. And you came out of that water different. Do you remember that joy? Do you remember the weight that was lifted when he came into your heart, into your life? Joy. We often think of that as as festive and, and celebratory. Yet joy can be that deep assurance of God's abiding spirit in his presence with us. Even in times of deep grief. Even in times when we don't feel happy. Because the joy of the Lord transcends this world and everything that it throws at us. Amen? Amen. When life's pressures come, we can have joy because we know God is above it all. And even when I feel unworthy, I can still have joy. And knowing that my salvation doesn't come from the way that I feel, but it comes from the fact that Christ died on the cross and he has paid the debt for my sin. You see, joy transcends emotion. But that day, that day, The ark's triumphal entry was not met with joy by all in Israel. In fact, as we continue reading, we read that as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised. Despised him in her heart. I don't know about y'all, but in modern English today, that word despise is still very strong to me. 
Now, Michael, it's interesting. You know, Michael is queen because David married Michael. But it's interesting in this passage, she's not called that. She's called Saul's daughter, not David's wife. I think the author, the one who wrote this down, was kind of making a point, if you stop and think about it. But she was royal by birth as the daughter of King Saul. She really should have been just as exuberant as everybody else was, but but there was a problem, and it was a big problem because, you see, Michael had lost her joy. It was not that she didn't trust God. It wasn't that she wasn't worshiping him. It was that her focus was on something different, something other than God. Do you know where her focus was? It was on herself. She did not feel the joy. Instead, Michael was critical of David because he had something she no longer possessed. It's interesting, David, you can think about it. He's gone through this day and he has been so full of the Lord, so full of what was going on, so praising him. That as he leaves the festivities, you know, it's dark, it's late, he's coming home late. He's glad, he's happy, he is on top of the world, so full of joy. He's going to go home and he's going to go and he's going to bless his house, bless that palace, right? Husbands, can you picture it? Have you ever been out with the boys having a really good time? And when you come home, you look up and there's the wife in a moo-moo with her hair up in curlers, rolling pin in hand. Guys, you better be quiet now. But you can picture Michael tapping her foot and scowling, ready to just unload on David. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Interesting, huh? In fact, if you notice, there's there's two accusations there. One of disrobing, in fact, you might be reading a translation that said, He was dancing naked. And the other being vulgar. Now let's unpack these for just a second. Disrobing. uh, That accusation was patentedly false. Because I just read for you at verse 14 where it says that David was what? He was wearing a linen ephod, right? See, he was neither naked nor indecently dressed. That's just patently false. But it does make sense if you consider the second accusation, that of being vulgar. 
in the sense of common. You see, what David did do is he took off his royal robes. He divested himself of his kingly finery. And he put on the robe of the common people and was celebrating out in the street, dancing before the Lord, not caring at all what anybody thought except for his God as a commoner, naked of all of the trappings of his earthly royal position. Now, can you imagine for just a moment what David might be thinking? Vulgar? You're accusing me of being vulgar, being a commoner? Well, that's exactly what I am and what I've always been. A common, lowly, last born, eighth child of a shepherd who by the grace of God has been raised to lead the people of Israel, not to rule over them. And Michael felt it beneath her to express joy in the Lord. In fact, what Michael did was she had replaced her joy with a sense of entitlement. As such, she resented David's humility, his ability to, to set himself aside and just worship God and to just be in his presence with all of his being, with reckless. Abandon. And it's safe to say that Michael paid for that attitude. That her arrogance cost her plenty because God closed her womb and Saul's bloodline ceased to be a part of the royal family. Why? Because Michael had forgotten how to be humble before the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Are you familiar with this phrase? Familiarity breeds contempt. Have you ever heard that? You know where I heard that? My grandmother, Annabelle Robinson, who died at 101 and a half... Um, as Joy says, when you're six and you're a hundred, that half counts. <laughs> she used to use this phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Now maybe you heard it in, in the, the same way she liked to say it. She talked about that in the, talking about a dating relationship. Yes, familiarity breeds contempt. There's a great application there and probably something that our young people need to hear a little bit more often too. But, you know, in marriage, it kind of sort of has an application there too when you stop to think about it. Some marital frustrations come from knowing your mate 
really well, don't they? Don't shake your heads. Nobody look around. Yet I wonder if this proverb applies to other areas of life, such as eating. When the boys were young, all three of our kids, they would, sometimes we'd get famished, and when we got famished, you know what we did? We went and had a buffet, and not just any buffet, pizza buffet. (laughs) CC's Pizza, cheapest stuff out there, and the kids just absolutely consumed it. Like, it just hit them. And, you know, the boys and I, we would walk into that arena known as CC's like gladiators hungry for the kill. (laughs) And we'd grab a plate or two and we'd sit down and we would go right at it until we hit a wall. I'd have about eight, nine pieces in. The boys would keep going, but they'd reach a point where You'd say, hey, you want another piece? You want to get another piece? And they'd be at the point of saying, I can't stand to eat anymore. Just can't stand it. Growing up, there was a staple in the house in which I grew up in that we ate at least once a week. And if the pot was big enough, we ate it for several days a week. Maybe you're familiar with the concept. You ever had pinto beans and cornbread? That was my daddy's favorite meal. Pinto beans and cornbread. Pinto beans and cornbread ain't pizza. (laughs) I ate that stuff till it was coming out my ears. And I can tell you, it was not my favorite by a long shot. But I never stopped to consider that eating pinto beans and cornbread made it possible to have shoes, new pants, a warm bed. I wonder if sometimes if sometimes we are blessed so much that we become jaded to where it was that God found us and what it was that God raised us out of to make us holy in his sight I wonder if sometimes we're too familiar with him to remember just how common we are. Can we become joyless because we're no longer moved by grace? Paul describes it this way. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, his enemies, Christ died for us. 
since we have been acquitted by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have we been reconciled Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received that reconciliation. You can almost hear Paul as he's writing this and his emotion is welling up when he realizes where he was and where he's going. You ever consider where you used to be and where you're going now? Friend, A joyless Christian is an oxymoron. It's it's two things that, that don't belong together. It's an oxymoron. Christ's sacrifice allows us to escape the judgment and the punishment that we have earned and that we deserve because of our rebellious sin. Friend, I pray that you never forget where you were when God found you and washed you clean in the bloody waters of baptism. May you remember so that you can praise his name with a deep, abiding joy all the days of your life. Father God, we thank you for being the creator, the sustainer, the giver of true abiding joy. We know, Father, that without your Son, Without the sacrifice you were willing to make, each of us are dead. And we know that through this Christ, not only do you give us redemption and a second chance, you give us joy that goes beyond the circumstances of this life. May we leave here today, Lord, remembering what we were and knowing that we still are not what we could be or what we should be, but remembering that we're changed. 
And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you've never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, I can tell you, you're missing out on some joy that you can have for the rest of your life. Find your joy today. If you have a decision you want to make, I want to be standing right here. Come and talk to me. Stand and sing with me if you would.